You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. For 35 years, investors have been able to rely on one crucial constant, a bond bull market which, every time it seemed to be on the point of reversing, found new impetus and continued its run, reaching levels which have never before been seen in recorded history. Of course, high prices in the bond market mean low yields, and while prices can conceptually rise to the sky forever, yields, it's always been thought, would be constrained by the zero bound. While the recent actions of central banks have tested and in many cases disproven that theory, it was clear that negative rates could only ever be a moment in time. Recently, however, as the Federal Reserve continues on its tightening course, bond yields have started to climb, and with signs of inflation stirring, debate has increased around some key questions. Is the bond bull market finally over? And, if so, what does a world of higher rates look like, and what are the knock-on effects? Over the last few trading days, we found out the hard way. This week on Adventures in Finance, the Bond Bull Market. Today is the 8th of February 2018 and welcome to episode 53 of Adventures in Finance. Uh, this week, producer James is up in a cold New York City. James, how are you there? Are you there? Come in. Yeah, cold is right. I, I thought my ears were going to freeze off earlier today. Well, you probably have no winter wardrobe living in the Cayman Islands. Um, Board shorts were not a good thing to bring to New York in winter. Hey, listen, you that, keep it real. Keep it real. I just you you wear those board shorts of pride up there. My flip flops aren't working. I'm hoping that uh, alongside you is Alex. Are you, Alex, are you there? I am, and I'll just say it's extremely temperate in New York, so I have no idea what James is talking well, about. Well, listen, if he asked to borrow any cold weather clothing, do not lend it to him under any circumstances, by my guess. Um, now, this week, we've got a lot to get to because markets have decided to get a little bit squirrely on us after several years of almost coma-inducing tranquility. Um, we've seen the reintroduction of some volatility. So... What better thing to do than talk about uh, the bond markets and the equity markets, of course. And we have two fantastic guests this week who are going to help us do that. First of all, Jeff Snyder of Alhambra Partners, who um, really does dig into the plumbing of markets and has uh, a great technical knowledge, as good as anyone I've ever met. And also my good buddy, Greg Weldon, the tallest man uh, in finance, who is going to help us get a sense of where we are on some of the technical levels um, in the bond and equity markets. But before we get into that, 
we need to jump into our long short feature. And once again, I'm going to do the right thing, Alex, and I am going to let you go first. You can pick long short. Um, what do you got for me this week? Well, you know, I am, this might be a little controversial, but I am long short volatility ETFs this week. Interesting. So we had the XIV uh, basically go bye-bye. Termination uh, event, I believe. Oh, no, yeah. acceleration event was the technical name for it, but uh, termination. Yeah, you never want to hear that when you're long something you that they're going to. Um, but, but like, I just want to take a second because so many people are saying, oh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's folly to try to play market volatility using ETFs, and, oh, it works until it doesn't. And, and there's been a lot of harsh um, commentary pieces, I, I told you so kind of stuff. And I just want to say, you know, the, the, the VIX basically saw 100% one-day rise, and, and you're trying to get the one-day performance of the VIX. And, and so that's why the XIV went to zero. And, and it, for many years, it was, it was a hugely successful trade for people who are long. Um, and now that it's completely gone away, it, it, but it's almost like betting on black uh, at the roulette table. You bet on black, you double your bet, you bet on black, you double your bet, you bet on black. Eventually, the ball's going to land on red, and you're going to lose your money. Um, so the ETF worked as it's supposed to. It might have caused a little bit of the VIX rise and the general stock fall we've seen this week, but I think it's it's actually kind of a success story. It's, it's a really complicated product that uses an ETF wrapper around futures around derivatives but at the end of the day kind of did what it's supposed to and i just want to kind of take a moment to acknowledge that amid all the criticism of these products requiem for a dream well look i mean i i i totally get where you're coming from i'm not sure that i agree with you 100 percent. and i think here's the problem um this smacks of this is great while the the issuer is making money out of it and then once things get squirrely yeah, it goes away. and You're going to lock in all your losses. You've got no chance to make it back again. And I think that the problem here is not necessarily in the instrument itself, although people that know a lot more about volatility than me have been saying for a long, long time that this thing was a disaster waiting to happen. And that, and that seems to be the way it's played out. But the problem here is people have become conditioned to making money with these instruments. And I suspect, even though no doubt the the legal contracts, everything that people have signed up for are watertight, to say the very least. I am counting the days until we see the first class action suit lobbed in against the uh, trustee of the short volatility fund. Because I'm just, people don't like losing money anymore. They've, they've kind of figured that that shouldn't be allowed to happen. And so when they lose 100% in um, in their uh, investments overnight, they're going to get a bit squirrely about it. Interestingly enough, there was a whole bunch of talk about this on some of the um, some of the uh, internet sites, and I read uh, a piece on Zero Hedge of, of a guy who'd basically spent years accumulating four and a half million dollars in profits in this mm. thing and, and lost it overnight. But fair play to him, uh, right. you know, he owned it. He said, "Look, it's my own stupid fault. I, I, I made a mistake. I held on to this thing, and I, you know, I didn't hedge it, and I lost all my money." Which is, yeah, I, I think, mean, the right it, attitude. It, it's definitely a lesson in, in, in knowing what you own. I mean, it, yeah. if, if you thought this thing would never go to zero, you just weren't paying attention, frankly, because well, it was right there. To see the VIX double is, is a you know somewhat regular event. It should happen every couple of years, but well, yeah, but th this is the problem. This recency bias because it hasn't happened. People assume it can't. Um, sure. 
Anyway, well, funny enough, I, I I was long volatility, and we've kind of um, we've kind of had that conversation. My, my reasoning being that I, I think we can we can welcome volatility back. It's uh, one of the features of the vol environment for the last few years, and it was something that uh, Chris Cole of Artemis pointed out uh, very recently was not yeah. not the, the the actions of volatility itself in spiking, but how quickly it damped down again um, because of all this selling of vol. And I think if the selling of vol goes away, or even if it gets a bit spooked. Um, we are going to see uh, the reintroduction of volatility. Now, personally, I think that's a good thing. I think the uh, the lack of volatility was completely artificial and, and did have people perhaps not thinking the way they should about their investments. But but I am most certainly long volatility now because I think uh, I don't think it's going back to eight anytime soon. Now, on the short side, um, Alex, I'm going to jump in here because I have decided to delegate this week and I am I'm handing my short opportunity over to none other than producer James at AIF James. James, what's your short this week, buddy? The only reason why you're giving this to me is because you don't want to poke the bear on the Tesla side. Oh, ha- course, hang on. Hang on a second now. Hang on a second. <laughs> this is outrageously unfair. I did not, I repeat, not suggest you do this in my stead. I, I seem to remember you no, volunteering no. to do this. I, I did. I did. Um my, my initial suggestion was that you did this and you didn't want to touch it, so I said I would. But if anyone was paying attention to anything in the last couple of days, we would have noticed that Elon Musk sent a Tesla Roadster to Mars. Almost. So I'm, I'm short the Tesla autopilot because <laughs> if it actually worked, maybe he would have made it to Mars. But instead, the Tesla Roadster is going the long way around and is headed for somewhere in between Jupiter and Mars in the asteroid belt. So, you know, I, I'm with that, I'd say that I'm short the Tesla autopilot system. But that being said, one of the coolest things I've ever seen was watching both of those boosters land almost simultaneously on their designated landing pads. I mean, that was a sight to be seen. That was absolutely spectacular. So, hang on, let me get this, let me get this right. You are you're basically bashing tesla again you know i i i, I just I, i'm just the same old story with you james constantly bashing tesla uh you know I, i'm getting kind of fed up with it can you not come up with something more original <laughs> yes but spacex with those rockets man that that, that was impressive they just got to aim them in the right direction to actually <laughs> right. get them okay. to where they need to go okay. that's you know you, you don't want to be an astronaut on a spaceship and you think you're going to mars and you find out you're actually going to jupiter well, worse, you're going to the asteroid belt. I, I would imagine uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's more fun on Jupiter. So it's almost as bad as the accelerated termination event. Yeah, there we go. Well, it may turn into just that. Well, Alex, what's uh, what's your short this week? I am short network television. Ah, yes. So there was a story uh, <laughs> that was being passed around in the New York Times and other places that um, uh, the sheriff in Humboldt County, California, um, sent out a missing persons report. Uh, and one of these people seemed pretty familiar uh, to a lot of individuals there. And for a good reason, she was one of the contestants on the current season of The Bachelor. So she was not actually missing. She was vying for the heart of uh, whoever the, the given Bachelor was. Um, and it just strikes me that in the old days when network television was maybe a little more popular, I, I don't think Charo from The Love Boat would have showed up on the missing persons report. I think people would know, know she's alive and well and, and, uh, and vying for the hearts of, of whoever 
I, I, I can't think of another Love Boat character, so, but if I could, I would have a really <laughs> good hey, joke here. Kudos to you. Judging by your age, I'm surprised you can think of any Love Boat character. That's, that's pretty impressive. Um, but hang on, let me get this straight, because I will very happily admit to never having watched The Bachelor, um, and this has not inspired me to do so, but she's, she's on a network TV show, and she's also been labeled as a missing person. Is that right? That's correct, and she... And, and and even though people had seen her on the show, they the county was not able to talk to her, so they couldn't take her off the list for a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, her, basically, her mother, I think, called the, the sheriff and, and put her on the list. And she actually, uh, her name is Rebecca Martinez. She released a, a tweet saying, Mom, how many times do I have to tell you I don't get cell phone service on The Bachelor? So. Oh, my God. Well, this, this does not. This does not speak uh, glowingly of how good a show and how widely watched The Bachelor is, I guess. No, I, 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 don't, I don't think so, although... I think my mom still watches it. All right, all right, Anne, that, that, that's enough from you. Listen, this, the, you, rap, this week's rapidly turning into the Producer James show, and obviously we cannot possibly <laughs> allow that. All right, well, that's enough of Long Short for this week. Let's get into our feature presentation. And uh, with um, the moves we've seen in the bond market and perhaps more more optically for most people, the equity markets over the last week, um, we thought it was a great chance to get the opinions of a couple of guys that, that really do know those markets well and see what they make of what's happening. And joining us first is Jeff Snyder of Alhambra Partners, who uh, Jeff's been on Real Vision several times, and he's always... Um, one of our guests that gets the most response in the comment section, and for good reason. Uh, Jeff knows his chosen field inside out better than most. He's also one of the foremost James Woods impersonators that it's ever been my pleasure to come across. So, uh, Jeff, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Graham. Uh, so the the uh, subject on hand today is uh, the bond market. To start with, we'll get on to the equity market in a short while. Um, but you are one of the people that I love to listen to when I'm trying to get my head around the bond market. Um, and so what better time to get someone uh, like you to come and talk to us about this than, than now when we're seeing resistance levels being threatened on just about every chart uh, you can you can find. So just give us, if you can, a, your, your quick take on where we are in the bond market vis-a-vis -vis the big argument about is the, is the big bull over or uh, is this just, uh, are we just testing resistance here? Well, I think the first thing to, to say is that uh, there's no such thing as a bull market in bonds. And I, th I think that's one of the things that uh, you can get hung up on as sort of a uh, – um, is it more of a marketing type thing than an actual analysis point. You know, uh, a bull market in bonds doesn't make much sense to me. And you certainly wouldn't hear somebody talk about the, the market in Japanese government bonds as having been in a bull market for the last 30 right. years either. That's a good point. So – you know, to me, it's more of a, an emotional argument than a rational one. Um, and it, but it's an important distinction that I think we need to stop and point out uh, because it, it, I think it tells us a, a little bit about who's making the argument and why. But as far as an overview of the bond market, uh, what we've seen in the last couple of months is really the same thing we've been seeing for years, is that the long end is resisting what the Fed's doing at the short end. Now, it can't completely resist because the short end part of the yield curve has been pushed up so much by uh, expectations about how far the Fed might get that it, you know long-term interest rates have to rise to adjust, and so they have. Um, the question is, how long do they stay in that, that kind of a situation? And where do they perhaps break from it like they did in 2006, uh, where the yield curve finally flattens down to essentially a, a low point and then completely inverts because uh, the long end of the bond curve just simply uh, does not agree with what the Fed is doing. And I think that's kind of where we're headed. 
we're headed to a collision of sorts between the short and long end. Uh, the Fed's going to raise rates. They feel good about doing it. And the long end says, you know, uh, I don't think you guys know what you're talking about. So, so do you, I mean, obviously, the, the big question people have here now is in the determination level of the Fed. Um, they've they've given people ample warning. They're going to they're going to keep hiking. Uh, the market's kind of let them off the first year, I suspect, with a view that perhaps uh, they won't follow through on it. But now, as the data comes through, undeniably stronger. Um, you know, even if optically so, uh, that's all the Fed really needs. Do, do you think that their determination to hike is is resolute still? Do you, do you see anything stopping them doing that? Well, I, I think right now uh, everything is on their side. Um, they can point to a couple of different things that over the last couple of years have been there. So I do believe the market believes the Fed is resolute, and the Fed may actually be resolute. Um what the long end of the curve disagrees with is why, <laughs> and ultimately that's what matters in the long run. But I do think that you're right, Graham, that uh, uh, the short end in particular is believing now that uh, the Fed is going to raise rates at a le- at an accelerated rate that they claim to be. But we also should remember here the Fed is really taking their time. They're not actually raising rates all that fast. I mean – if you go back, uh, they started in December of 2015, so we're, we're a little over two years into this. In that same amount of time in 2004 and 2006, uh, Greenspan's Fed raised rates 17 times, right. and we've got five. So I think that the, the, what the bond market is saying about ultimately not only where where is the Fed going to stop, but will they actually get that far, there are some doubts expressed at the long end that I think are legitimate. So when you look at uh, the short end particularly, and you see the, if you look at the charts of the of the two year and the five year, for example, you can see this uh, incredibly sharp pickup in yields. Does the pace of change worry you at all in terms of how fast this thing is moving now, or are we just playing catch up and we'll find equilibrium and kind of settle down? Do you think? No, I think it's more more the case of uh, you know the natural progression in in a, in a monetary policy cycle. Uh, I think for a while there, especially in 2015 and 16, the market was a little skeptical the Fed would get very far at all. And I think what's changed in 2017 was that a lot of that downturn, a lot of those negative liquidity pressures from the rising dollar during that point had dissipated enough that it seemed logical that the Fed had at least a clear path for the foreseeable future to actually do some more rate hikes like they intended. I think that's what changed ultimately was the fact that there wasn't uh, there wasn't as many lingering negative factors that were obvious that would keep the Fed on, uh, like it did in 2016, for example. The Fed went the full a whole year without uh, raising rates, except for the one time mm-hmm. late in that year. Uh, so, Jeff, you know, there, there's been a lot of discussion about the dislocations caused by the rising rates in the long end, particularly when it comes to the equity market. And there has been a narrative that the drop we've seen in stocks is response to fears of higher rates and the actual higher rates we're getting. What, what do you make of that narrative? I'm not sure it makes a whole lot of sense to me because we're not talking about you know a 5% tenure here. We're talking about maybe 3% if it can actually get that far. And that's, that's a substantial difference. Um, you know, Interest rates are still very low, especially at the long end. And to, to think that, a, a, that there's a difference if the tenure gets to, say, 3.5% versus 2.5%, I don't think that's a tremendous a tremendously significant difference. So I, I'm a little skeptical of that argument. And I think if you want to talk about stocks and what's happened over the last couple of days, what's more uh, 
more interesting to me is the, the background liquidity environment, which is something that the uh, long end of the yield curve is going to be very much in tune with. So, so Jeff, let, let me change this tack just a little bit and get on to the, uh, the quantitative tightening, as it's been dubbed, the, you know, the, Fed's, the Fed's unwind program of its balance sheet. Um, simplistically speaking, when you look at what quantitative easing did, uh, lowered rates and boosted equity prices, boosted bond markets and lowered volatility. Uh, if we boil this thing down in its simplest terms, you would expect quantitative tightening to have the opposite effect. And then so far, uh, that's exactly what's happened. We have seen bond prices fall, we've seen equity prices fall, and we've most certainly seen a return of volatility. Um, how, do you, how do you handicap the Fed's chances of maintaining their pace that they have, uh, have set off on? Well, you know, it gets back to a lot of uh, the nuts and bolts of what the Federal Reserve actually did. Uh, I'm not sure I buy quantitative tightening just like I didn't buy quantitative easing. All we're talking about is the level of the Fed's balance sheet and what's left over on the Fed's balance sheet, which are bank reserves. And bank reserves are not money. I mean, as much as they're talked about in a monetary equivalent sense, they're not. They're one form of bank liability, which is one reason why the economy, for example, never really benefited from for, for, for very large QE programs. So I'm not really sure that there's a huge difference in actual mechanics of money between QE and not QE, or the opposite of QE, winding down the balance sheet. I think there is a difference in psychology because people certainly feel better if they believe that the Fed has their back, and they might feel a little bit more apprehensive believing that the Fed may be there which is a significant change in and of itself, but it doesn't necessarily work out to the same kind of change where uh, it makes the market much more of a dangerous place because the Fed is supposedly tightening its balance sheet. Um, and again, I think that gets back to the you know minor differences of where interest rates are and where they might be a year or two from now. I think it's, it's overdone and that there's a little bit too much respect for the Federal Reserve and monetary policy. For one thing, interest rates fell more without QE than with it. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if that's a, it's a case that we want to make or if that's, that's the basis for, for our analysis going forward. But there is definitely psychological effects and very clear psychological effects because people have taken inordinate risks believing that the Fed has been there all along and they may become less apt to do so if they now all of a sudden think that, well, maybe the Fed isn't going to be there. So, so let's let's move on to equities. You, you touched on it there. Um, yeah, we've seen uh, what is the first major correction that we've seen in in a couple of years now. It's caught a lot of people off guard. Um, it was a very violent shakeout. Uh, it's it's stabilizing. We're we're recording this on uh, on Tuesday, and it's certainly stabilized today. Um, but still, there's this there's this uh, nervousness around now that we really haven't seen for a significant period of time. And when you factor in the importance of that psychological component that you spoke about, um, you know, it, it, how how do you see the equity market here? Is are we are we three days down and done, or are we still in dangerous territory? Do you think in terms of this correction continuing? Well, what this reminded me of was October two thousand fourteen. If you go back to October two thousand fourteen, what most people remember was the fifteenth of that month, which turned out to be a U.S. Treasury uh, buying panic. It was called you know severe drop in rates. But people, I think, forget that before that uh, buying panic in the Treasury market, the stock market actually was a liquidation too. 
it was more of a three or four day event rather than a one day or two day event. But the proportions were very similar from, from I think it was September 22nd, 14, until October 15th, uh, the S&P 500 fell about a little bit over 7%, which is pretty much the same amount as it fell in the last couple of days. And what that was, was again, a, a, an acknowledgement that the background liquidity situation globally, the dollar situation globally, wasn't all that great and that it that even the stock market which had been um before then almost impenetrable to any kind of negative factor all of a sudden people were like wait a minute the stock market could drop seven percent in a couple days um and what it was was again the recognition that uh liquidity had deteriorated earlier in 2014 things like the repo market and uh cross-currency basis swaps and some other things that indicated finally that these things were starting to break out after October 15, 2014, was the stock market rocketed ahead again. You know, by early 2015, it was setting new highs all over again as if nothing had ever happened. And then we went into the downturn in 2015 and 16. So the way I look at it, if, it, if this kind of an uh, analogy holds, is the stock market is telling us, I believe, that uh, there are some significant liquidity problems again in 2017 and early 2018 that make the overall monetary environment a little suspect. And I don't, again, I don't think it has anything to do with quantitative tightening. It has more instead to do with the background monetary situation as it has been since 2007. So would that argue then that this is a, a short-term move that's driven by conditions in the marketplace, but you know, markets will continue rising once it has a bit of a shakeout or, or where do you kind of see things going from here? I think yeah, this drop in the market was probably a short-term thing. It was a little little warning tremor that some of the stuff we see in the repo market, for example, the illiquidity tightening there is becoming maybe a little bit more serious. Um, you know, repo fails in December were enormous. Uh, we had a couple week or one week was over eight hundred billion. That's a that's a pretty big um, indication that uh, things are kind of tight in the dollar markets across the rest of the world. And so I don't think it's necessarily a surprise that you see what, what really looked like a liquidation yesterday, um, especially with the, the Treasury market, um, almost you know by the minute, tick for tick, uh, the 10-year yield dropped as the Dow Jones Industrials dropped. So um, to me, I think it was a liquidation, a collateral call, a margin call, a short-term event that is uh, another in a series of warnings that you know we're kind of repeating 2014 and 2015 all over again. So then, um, to, to take a, a longer-term view, you know, we we talked about how three percent or two point five percent, maybe not such a huge difference for the market. To take a longer-term view, maybe getting back to bonds, like, do you think we're getting back to five, six, seven, eight, like? What's kind of the long-term picture in terms of bond yields? Uh, do you believe in the secular stagnation hypothesis, or are we going to see higher yields again? You know, after some period of time. No, I think it's it's more Japanification. If you you know, sec, uh, Larry Summers' uh, secular stagnation, I think, is the right idea, but the wrong cause. Uh, but yeah, I, that's you know, you look at something like eurodollar futures. The eurodollar futures curve at the long end is saying the Fed's not getting above three percent. That's the max that they're going to do. And that's pretty much what the Treasury market's saying, too, is that the Fed is going to struggle to get up toward 3%. And if you listen to what the academic uh, academics have been saying over the last couple of years as they've tried to map out this monetary policy, 
are in agreement too. Uh, Janet Yellen herself said at one point in 2000, I believe it was 2016, where they're preparing for a maximum altitude on the federal funds corridor of about 3%. And that's a substantial difference from anywhere in the past. I mean, Greenspan, despite his 17 rate hikes in the middle 2000s, only got to five and a quarter percent, which was, a, which was down significantly from where it had been in the 90s, and of course, or earlier. So uh, the fact that the, we have lower altitudes through these, I don't want to call them cycles, but they're kind of like business cycles, elongated as they may be, but the lower altitudes each time goes along with the idea of secular stagnation, Japanification, if you want to call it. Uh, the academics call it a low R-star world or a low neutral rate environment. All of the signs are there that this is going to continue unless something substantial changes. Um, and unless something something meaningfully does, I think we're trapped in this kind of a state where we get a little bit better growth isn't really that much better. Just to follow up on that, um, if you see demographics as the wrong cause is what I assume you're referring to, what do you think is, is the actual cause of this um, trend? Well, demographics is surely a drag. I mean, baby boomer retirements are going to be uh, a problem. But, you know, you go back to the projections 10 years ago before the Great Recession, um, even the CBOE in, in running long-term projections of potential ec economic growth didn't think that the baby boomer retirement wave was going to shave off all that much from the economy. Instead, what happened, if you plot GDP against the baseline, it fell off in 2008 and 2009 and never recovered. To me, that's not demographics. That's money. Uh, what happened in 2008 and 2009? We had a global financial pan panic, and it was one that was centered in the eurodollar system, and the eurodollar system has never recovered from what happened at that point. And so we have this massive monetary drag that's ongoing, and it's been ongoing. It doesn't go in a straight line. It goes in these intermittent phases where the dollar rises as, as things get tight, and then the dollar falls as things loosen up relatively, and the economy has gone into that kind of same stop-go mode where it seems to get a little bit better, and then it gets a little bit worse, and it gets a little bit better, but it never really breaks out of that paradigm. And so I think that's where we are. We're stuck in a monetary trap where so long as there's no incentive for the big banks to go back into the euro-dollar system and grow again like they did before 2007, um, there's never going to be that kind of dynamic energy to push the economy back into a growth situation. Uh, Jeff, you, you touched on um, the euro dollar market there. It, it, that's that's a subject for another day because it's uh, it, it's detailed, it's intricate, and and nobody knows it better than you, frankly. Um, but uh, but just one last question: Given the market action of the last few days, has the dollar's move or lack of it surprised you at all? Uh, given the backdrop. A little bit. I thought there would have been a little bit more of a, a counteraction. But then again, you know, the momentum in particular has been very strong on the falling side. In fact, it's one of the most crowded trades, especially against the euro. Um, everybody is long the euro and short the dollar. So, uh, you know, I think it would take a little bit more than um, something in the stock market to push people to, to rethink that trade. I think that's going to be something uh, more along the lines of weaker economic growth or something from the Fed where uh, the short-term curves, uh, short-term treasury curve starts to reprice whether or not the Fed actually gets as high as it does, um, whether they can do the, the interest rates as they might. So I'm not really sure that the, the dollar itself, uh, particularly against the euro, is ready for a reversal. Though, I mean, you know, with everybody in the, on the long side of the euro, it could, when it does start to reverse, if it does, it could do so very quickly. 
Fantastic. Well, look, Jeff, uh, we've run out of time, unfortunately, but perhaps if you wouldn't mind letting the listeners know where they can follow you because um, you're, you're prolific uh, output and it's always uh, fantastic uh, to read and incredibly educational. So let people know where they can find you if you wouldn't mind. Sure, they can find me right on our my company's website, which is alhambrapartners.com. Um, we're just a retail investment advisor in Florida. Fantastic. Jeff Snyder, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Pleasure. Yeah, interesting. You know, it's a very sanguine view there from Jeff about the bond market, and it's it is something that um, there's a hell of a lot of debate about whether this bull market's over, and for good reason because if it is over, uh, everything changes essentially. If we if we go into a bond bear market, everything changes. Yeah, it, it's interesting just trying to think about how much the equity markets run comes from the bond markets run. It, it's it's one of those chicken the egg things, but. Um, I don't know, trying to work out how that interplay works is probably going to become really important in the months ahead as, as the Fed, if if and as the Fed uh, continues to raise rates here. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And one person I know we can rely on to uh, to have an opinion on just about everything is a dear friend of mine, uh, the publisher of Weldon Live, um, for all the way from sunny Florida, Greg Weldon. Greg, you there? Welcome to the show, buddy. My pleasure, Grant. Thanks for the invite. Uh now, there's a lot to talk about. There's all kinds of stuff going on this week, that, stuff that you and I have been wondering when it's going to happen for some considerable time, but uh, it certainly appears to be here. I don't know how long it'll last, but we'll we'll maybe get into that in a second. But I want to start, all the headlines have been about the equity market, but I want to start off with the bond market. Um, what do you think is happening in the bond market, and is that potentially the root cause of all this uh, unrest? I think it's the catalyst, yes. The root cause... We could discuss at length once we kind of get through the bond market. But I think the bond market has been a catalyst. I think that, you know, you've seen this move from, if you look at where the two-year was at around one and a quarter, and the Fed was projecting by the end of this year a two to two and a quarter Fed funds rate, that was very much an inconsistency. And while a lot of people were kind of scratching their heads saying, wow, the short end is pricing in a more hawkish Fed, they really weren't. They were, you know, in my mind, the short end was way overpriced relative to where the Fed was. Um, more recently, you've got the two-year note above the implied futures markets pricing of the Fed funds rate for the end of this year. And to me, that was kind of a critical move. And I said in one of my research pieces, from this stage, if you go any higher in yield, you could really tip over the apple cart that is the U.S. stock market, particularly given all the money that came into the market in January given the huge moves that we've seen, given the overvaluations, whatever metric you want to you pull out, you know, obviously this market is extended at the very least and potentially something much more sinister at worst, at worst. And, you know, to me, this kind of also built on expectations of a tax plan to be, you know, to be uh, agreed upon. You've had some deregulation. You're talking about infrastructure now. So I kind of wonder if the market got all this money in and then said, well, wait a second now, where, you know, we kind of have our expectations for growth, but what's the next thing? Because this is a market, as we know, you go back to the crisis where QE has been the driving force. You can correlate the Fed's balance sheet to the stock market directly. Since August 2014, the stock market went dead sideways until Donald Trump got elected. And since then, it's been kind of this promise of fiscal QE that has driven the stock market higher, led by the consumer, who has borrowed unprecedented amounts of money, now even getting down to credit cards, growth in credit, exceeding growth in income. This is a problem. You saw it in PCE. Growth in disposable income was less than the growth in spending. 
And we see this in terms of households that make less than $75,000 a year, very much extending their credit to the point where, you know, some of this tax cut has kind of already been spoken for in terms of spending. So I even wonder whether the consumer is going to be able to sustain this level of spending. And I really think the answer to that is no. And then what happens if you kind of come out of this where, you know, the stock market recovers and growth uh, objectives are not seen? And let's not forget, Grant, you know, fiscal QE is not really QE. It's not monetary QE. It's not new money. So that dynamic also, I think, you know, was overpriced by the market. It was ripe for a correction. Everyone owns it. You know, you had this just ridiculous extension in terms of the technicals. And frankly, you know, as we sit here today, I don't think the, the correction is really anywhere near over. Well, you, you spoke about technicals there, and I want to focus on that for a second, because, um, you know, when we look across the curve at uh, at all the charts, I mean, there are levels getting bumped up against and broken through left and right. Um, you know, the, the two-year, the five-year, and perhaps most importantly, you know, the long-term chart of the 10-year, if you look at that, it looks like it's it's either broken. I mean, it depends how cute you want to get. It's either broken a 35-year downtrend or it's damn close to doing so. Um, when you look at those technicals, which ones kind of resonate most with you? Which ones are the most important? And, and what do you see happening from here? Well, I think you don't have to get cute because it's pretty blatant. So, I mean, it's, you know, to me, the writing's been on the wall here, and you nailed it on the head, Grant. I mean, the 35-year downtrend, going back to when Volcker basically used interest rates to eradicate inflation back in the early 80s. It's been a three and a half, four decades-long secular downtrend in interest rates. The two-year note was the first to violate that trend line, along with, by the way, which I also watched, the 10-year exponential moving average on the monthly chart. Okay, so the two-year was first, then the five-year. Now the 10-year is bumping up against it, and the 30-year the, the is kind of you know, back below three, and its level is around three and a quarter. So you can see how the curve has, you know, this whole flattening move in the curve, to me, has been an adjustment by the short end to being ridiculously overpriced relative to where the Fed has said they're going to take Fed funds. Now what makes this even more critical, Grant, and you know this, and I know this, and we discuss this you know, on the sidelines all the time, $15 trillion in marketable securities in U.S. public debt. Okay, you got to roll this stuff over. The average maturity is 5.67 years. The average coupon yield, 188 if you strip out the notes. So we're looking at the shorter end of this, all right? So at a 2% yield on the five-year, that was your trigger point. I've called it the event horizon line. It's as if it's a debt black hole because what happens is now you are increasing the cost of servicing that debt, which in dollar terms is at a record high, all right, even though interest rates have been near record lows still, all right, you're projecting somewhere north of $400 billion this year, all right, so that tacks on to the deficit, which means more debt, which means higher rates, which means higher interest costs, which means more debt, so on and so forth. Can you escape a black hole? Can you have, you know, can the Fed eventually, you know, be the type of energy that draws light out of a black hole? That remains to be seen. And we're many steps away, probably, from the Fed even addressing this issue. So this is why I think the bond market is a big problem going forward, because I don't see the deficits uh, coming down. Look at the trade deficit number that came out this morning. Yeah. When's the last time you heard any talk about twin tower deficits? Well, I, I'll, well I'll tell yeah. you when. 1987 was the last time I remember yeah, it. Exactly. And I've made the comparisons to 87 for quite some time in terms of not only that, but the bond market's impact on the stock market being delayed. It's about the same nine-month time frame. 
You've seen the rollover in REITs. You've seen the rollover in utilities. You've seen kind of the interest-sensitive sectors already broke down a couple of weeks ago. So to me, this was a really telegraphed move. I'm not surprised by this. We, you know, we put out a special piece last Thursday, the day before this thing cracked wide open. So you got to get short. Not only do you want to get out, you want to get short because here it comes. And, you know, I think it's still going to be coming today. It's, it's rallied back. But in terms of what you're mentioning, the long-term technicals, this is a major tipping point because of how it impacts the deficit and the debt and how this is going to push rates higher. And more importantly, push the dollar down, all right, already a secular breakdown in the dollar with the move below 9,100. And what does that mean potentially for inflation down the road? Gosh forbid you get a push in inflation to three and you have some wage growth. What's the Fed going to do then? I mean, are they going to actually have to go further to stay neutral, which is the answer is yes. And how is that going to impact uh, the stock market? So that's my fear going forward, that this is kind of still early game, early stages of the game because of the 35-year technical dynamic that you're talking about. It's, it's very real and it has a real impact because it, it, it directly impacts the deficit and the debt. You know, as I've watched the last few days um, unfold, it, it, it's funny, you know, we've, we've seen a, a big decline in equity markets. Um, and like you, I, I think this was triggered by the bond market. Um, the fact that the Dow, we, we, here we are on Tuesday, the Dow has rallied significantly today. You, you get the sense that a lot of people think, okay, that's the all clear. We've had, we've had the washout, markets have stabilized. To me, as I look at what's happened over the last uh, four or five trading days, I feel like something's changed. Uh, and I just wonder if you agree with me or, or if you think this was a healthy washout and we're done with it and we can kind of stabilize around here and move higher again. Uh, I actually couldn't agree with you more. I think there has been a sea change here, tectonic plate shifting going on. And I think that, I mean, least of which, least of which, okay, is all the money that came into the market in January. Uh, we know the stocks they own. Okay, some of these stocks really haven't even broken down yet, like, a, you know, Facebook. I, I watched the PNQI, which is kind of your retail internet portfolio. It's a good gauge for kind of internet retailers that have been the highest flying stocks. And, you know, it really hasn't cracked wide open yet. And when you own all these shares, we've talked about this before, too. When you talk about something like an Amazon or a Google, $1,000 or more per single share, if people turn around and try and liquidate, look what the volume's done. Because of the high price nominally of one single share, the volume has dried up. And what if you get some kind of group of, you know, a significant amount of people that look to liquidate? That's an accident waiting to happen. I don't think we've seen that yet. And then I kind of started thinking about this this morning, and we actually exited our short position on the U.S. Open, by the way, uh, looking for a higher place to get short again, because I kind of just had a little daydream in terms of what, what kind of scenario might, might we be looking at in May, for example. And I could easily see a case where, yeah, people, there's a sense of complacency here. The market bounces. You're going to have a lot of overhead supply. I mean, I don't think there was a huge amount of liquidation that was actually done here. You're not looking at a huge distribution dynamic, I don't think. So from that perspective, you kind of have overhead resistance. I could see this being something that just bleeds. And you're sitting here in May saying, wow, the market's at kind of a new move low here for the, like the sixth day in a row. And really, it's not so dramatic that people are freaking out. But it's a slow, steady bleed based on a lot of the things we're talking about, particularly in terms of interest rates, the Fed, where inflation might go, what commodities could do here based on the dollar because of the deficits, so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think something's changed. And I think it gets back to that 35-year downtrend line in, you know, in the U.S. Treasury markets. So, Greg, I know it's hard to peer into a black hole, but 
as we you know break that downtrend and get these moves, how high could that take us in the ten-year yield first, and then maybe you can discuss what that would mean for the equity markets? Yeah, I mean that's a really great question. I mean I'm kind of right now really focused more on the two and five years, so you know I could see three percent. So maybe you're talking about three seventy-five towards four for the longer end. Uh, I could you know, and even in that vein, kind of still looking at. A neutral. I mean, the Fed. This whole talk about normalization that you had last year, I, I just hated that word because normal. What's normal? I mean, what's normal is what we have now, and normal is not a five percent two year. You think the two year can be a five percent? Everything's going to be okay? No way. So to me, it was about being neutral because the Fed has said repeatedly they've been very transparent, and at some points I say too transparent, but their transparency has given you a very clear message. They were worried about policy asymmetry that they have way more room to potentially tighten than they do to ease. And if they do have a situation where they want to, you know, kind of you know, ease a little bit or at least take their foot off the brake, uh, they don't want to do it. They've been very specific that they don't want to do it through QE. They don't want to reverse shrinkage. They want to get the balance sheet where they want to get it, and they don't want to have to change policy in the future using that vehicle right now. They have been very specific. We want to use interest rates if we have to ease again, and that means you have to get them to a level from which you can ease and have some impact. So I would say you're looking at, you know, instead of maybe 2% being a floor out in the next 18 to 24 months, maybe something closer to 3% at the short end. So that would be interesting, and then just kind of see how that plays out with where even the Fed Fund Futures is. Because one of the biggest things you biggest changes you've had since the beginning of the year is pricing and tightening for 2019 that did not exist back in December. I'm curious though, if you really saw the stock market fall, you know, 20% and yields start to rip and you see some really dramatic moves, if the Fed would be able to put the genie back in the bottle and say, okay, you know, we're, we're not gonna move rates at all this year or, or even we could lower rates, would that even stop those moves or is this just so uh, tightly coiled that it, it's a long time coming no matter what the Fed chooses to do in the next couple months? Well, I've, I've used the phrase, if you remember, I'm, I'm old and decrepit, as Grant will tell you. I remember, you know, kind of when I was a kid and the, the Vietnam War and the big thing was, what if they gave a war and nobody came? This was all the peace activists and their signs. Tony Curtis. Yeah, putting the flower in the guy's rifle and everything. And I kind of wonder, what if they gave QE or what if they gave an easing and nobody came? And nobody cared. I, you know, this is kind of like playing high stakes poker, which, you know, I really enjoy. So you can go all in and win pot after pot after pot. Okay, but that strategy, when it doesn't work, you're busted. You're out. You're done. So, you know, at some point in here, I think there is, you know, there's going to be some questions. Can the Fed do it? And not only that, but you know how the math works. I mean, to now, you know, kind of, again, why they want to shrink the balance sheet is so they don't have to increase it exponentially more to get the same impact. I mean, so, you know, it's kind of, you want to say a trillion dollars isn't what it used to be in terms of QE. And I think that's very true. And that's a real problem. Having said all that, though, having said all that, let me just, because this is critical, and I talked about this 10 years ago in, in the book I wrote, about monetary Armageddon. I mean, the Fed does, I mean, the Fed and the Treasury, and they get together and say, look, they push the button, you know, they turn the keys, and they're both in this together, and they uh, push the monetary Armageddon button where they buy every bond the Treasury's ever printed, all right? So, you know, can you fight that? I mean, this is where the whole adage, you can't fight the Fed, takes on a whole new meaning. Then what? I mean, we're obviously many steps away from that, but that's something to consider because we kind of say, well, it'll work until it doesn't work and that's going to be a real problem. Are they willing to break out the monetary Armageddon keys and to flip that switch? I don't know. I mean, I think 
we'll find out. But that's, you know, again, several steps away. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we will find out. And I can confirm for, for anyone listening um, who is wondering, you are definitely old and decrepit. Just just for those people out there <laughs> who think you might be a bit self-deprecating there. You know, you know uh, Greg, the, the other part of this, the other component that I, I've been fascinated uh, to watch this last week has been the dollar. And I know you've done a lot of work on the dollar and um, you've been all over it. You've called it very, very well. Uh, it didn't really do anything amidst all this, which, which surprised me enormously. And so, you know, that's now... Um, piqued my interest and and this is on my radar screen because I would have expected the dollar to have some fireworks the last couple of days. What do you make of its 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 kind of passive reaction to this? Um, I I think it's in waiting. I, to me, if you're saying you're surprised it isn't lower, is that what you're suggesting that it hasn't come off on this? Well, I, I mean, you could make a case either way, right? You could make a case uh, for it falling. You could make a case for it rising if people panicked and, and wanted to you know, buy some sort of safe haven. It just did nothing, which is a really weird kinda, reaction. Yeah, and we've been short, so I was kind of worried it was going to rally. And the right. fact that it didn't, to me, is like a green light, you know, yeah. all clear to pound it again. So that's my view. And frankly, and it's funny because... There seems to be some complacency, and if you kind of listen to the pop media, the suggestion is was before this crack in the stock market. It's kind of like, why is the dollar falling? You know, interest rates are going up, the economy is strong, and we're forgetting about the deficits widening. The dollar is still correlated to the deficit. You can map it out the last 15 years. It's a positive directional correlation, and the deficit is only going to deepen this year. There is no way it's not deepening. It already is. It's already 10% out just in the first fiscal quarter. So from that perspective, you know, the, the fundamentals have shifted. You went through the whole phase from late 2014 into 2000, maybe early 2016, when the dollar was up based on the Fed dot plot that they were going to be at three and a half Fed funds by now, which they're not. All right. Then you kind of shifted to the bond yield differential, specifically the U.S. Uh, German 30 year. So if you take that yield spread, the dollar has tracked that almost perfectly until the last maybe six to eight weeks. And all of a sudden, the deficit's widening. It's becoming large enough to raise eyebrows. And I think that that's the, neg- the real big negative here for the dollar. So the fact that it hasn't rallied kind of on this, uh, to me, is a sign that, uh, you know, the secular breakdown's for real and look for it to get, you know, mauled throughout the rest of the year, at least the first half of the year. So the other component of the fireworks this last week has, of course, been in the volatility space. I mean, this is something that... Uh, myself, you, so many people that you know, mutual acquaintances and friends of ours have been warning about as as a possibility this this explosion in the short vol complex. Uh, I don't think any of us really figured just how crazy things would get in the last couple of days, but it's happened and we have to deal with it. Um, what what's your take on vol now that we've seen this extinction event in the short vol products? Uh, I'm just waiting for the, the class action lawsuits to start flying around in that. Um, yeah. But 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 what happens next in the volatility space? Do, do things calm down, or like me, do you think this is just the beginning of a whole new phase in this? Well, it seems that you and I are on the same page on a lot of fronts, and that makes me very much more comfortable. I'll tell you that much. So respect your opinion. Uh, you know, Grant, we've seen this movie before. Okay, I'm again old and decrepit enough to have been on the Florida Commodities Exchange in the World Trade Center back in the '80s when the famed volume investors 
group of locals that were high-flying, really rich guys, very powerful on the exchange, okay? And what they were doing as, you know, Volcker eradicated inflation and dollar was going through the roof and gold was coming down. Not only that, but you had all these financial futures uh, just started trading, the life, the Matif, and so on and so forth. So volume and gold dried up. And what some of this group of locals, real powerhouse guys, started doing was selling call options month after month after month because it was free money and gold was never going to rally again. And then you had the Continental Bank dynamic in Chicago that drove gold up 40 bucks in a day. And that price was a huge price move percentage-wise on about a $240 underlying price. And volume investors went bankrupt and all these guys you know, were out and the lawsuit started. Uh, so we've seen this before. To anticipate that this was coming wasn't didn't take a rocket science degree to see this happening. Uh, I think from here the volatility is up, and I think the volatility is up for all these other reasons uh, aside from even the stock market. I mean, you're talking about you know deficits, higher rates. I mean, you're unhinging the stability that the Fed has kind of created artificially. So of course the volatility is going to go up. That was one of our major calls for this year: is expect increased volatility in everything and how this is going to impact trading opportunities, which to me is a good thing from just that perspective, because dollar down equals more volatility in the commodities markets. And I think, again, that's where your real potential surprises may lay, particularly the ag sector. You haven't seen any food inflation. You've just recently seen the CPI for food go from negative to a plus 0.9 in the most recent reading. And you have these grain markets, you know, corn, wheat, soybeans, the oil seeds, all of these. I mean, they have been so depressed over the last couple of years on huge crops, all right? The size of the crops are, have been enormous. They're record, all right? But what I think people tend to overlook a little bit is that demand for these things is record. It's a huge number for soybean imports from China just in the last trade report out of, out of the Chinese. So I think there's a margin for error that is very thin in some of these grain markets where dollar down, any kind of weather issue – and food could be a, all of a sudden a surprise this year in terms of adding to the CPI dynamic going forward. And I think all this ties together into kind of what we're seeing in terms of the, the deficit, the secular breakdown in the dollar, and that's stirring interest in commodities, and that lifts the volatility of everything, including the macroeconomic data. Fantastic. Well, look, buddy, we've we've run out of time, um, unfortunately. Luckily, uh, you and I get plenty of opportunities to discuss this, but uh, the audience don't have as great access to you as I do and uh, please for them tell them because your work for me is absolutely indispensable so just let everybody out there listening know where they can find you and find out more about you sure thanks Grant appreciate that uh, we're at weldononline.com that's w-e-l-d-o-n one word weldononline.com we do Weldon Live it's one product one price it's all in uh, you get our daily video you get the daily chart pack that we do and we have Trade Lab which is specific trading recommendations in all of these sectors, we do the dissection of all the global macro data and then break it down into specific strategies for fixed income, foreign exchange, uh, stock indexes and ETFs, uh, precious and industrial metals, the energies, and the X. So, uh, you know, the idea here is, you know, not just to kind of figure out what we think is happening in a macro level, but how do we use that information to help the customer make money? That's ultimately our, our goal for sure. It's uh, it is a great product. I can I can recommend it personally, wholeheartedly. Greg, mate, it's been always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you soon, Graham. Thank you. Well, as I said, Greg, you can guarantee has an opinion on just about everything, and uh, he's just an invaluable resource to me. I, I love his spirit. I love uh, the way he looks at things, and I have to say, uh, as he pointed out, that he and I are clearly aligned in a lot of things. 
Yeah, it's hard to predict those kinds of long-run changes that Greg's trying to look at, but I mean, obviously, those are the real ways you make money is by knowing really what the next huge trend is going to be. So I, I definitely admire that he's trying hard to do that. Yeah, no, exactly right. Well, look, that's, uh, that's all we have time for in our featured segment of the show this week. Uh, all that remains is, drumroll please, you guessed it, the legal disclaimer. God forbid we ever forget that. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research. Chart your technicals, place your stops, and trade responsibly. We will be back next week with another episode of Adventures in Finance. But in the meantime, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show, then we'd love to hear from you. So please do send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes. And leave those reviews. Don't forget to leave the reviews. If you want to keep up with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, then follow us on Twitter at realvision. You can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching for Real Vision. He tells the truth. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. I am Aces Rose. And you can find me at AI of James. Assuming you look. That's it from us. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you next week. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.